You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the show tonight, Enterprise Ireland's Maeve Conaghan will be joining me on the phone to start the programme off this evening talking about Foodworks Ireland, which is a development programme for food entrepreneurs. Michael Kelly, founder of GIY Ireland, will be highlighting the success of the 2015 hashtag Give Peas a Chance campaign and explaining how you can get involved this year. Chef Emmett McCourt, who wrote the award-winning Feast or Famine cookbook, will be talking about heritage and traditions, which is the March theme for the Northern Ireland Year of Food and Drink. And finally, at the end of the show, Ken Mare Foodie, Karen Coakley will be on the phone with her latest recipe to tantalise our taste buds. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So as I said, the first guest this evening is Maeve Conaghan from Enterprise Ireland and Maeve is on the phone to put a call out for food and drink startup businesses to apply to take part in Foodworks Ireland. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Maeve, thanks very much for joining me on the programme this evening. Oh, you're welcome, Sharon. Great to have to be on. And today you were in Moor Park in Fermoy to talk about Foodworks Ireland. Tell us what that is, please. Foodworks uh, Ireland is uh, an initiative between three different government agencies. So there's Enterprise Ireland, uh, who I represent, and there's Board Bia and Chagisk as well. And we've come together. It's kind of the first time we've done this um, for the Foodworks programme. It's the first time uh, the three agencies have come together really to work with startup companies or startup individuals who would like to set up a new food or beverage business in Ireland with a view to exporting off the island. So what sort of help and assistance do you offer somebody that maybe has it? Do they have to have an existing food business or do they just have to have an idea? Well, it's, um, yeah, that's the million dollar question. But what we have found in the past is that it's better if they have at least a kitchen scale product so that they don't just come in with a, with an idea in their head and think, well, that might be something that would sell. Because to develop a food product can take anything from nine to 18 months. So we often say it's about a year just to get the food product itself right. So if they come into the program and the product isn't really finished, the learning that they're getting from ourselves in Enterprise Ireland about investment, they get some support then, obviously, a lot of support from Board B in terms of consumer research, meeting consumer panels, trialing products, looking at competition. If you're not sure really where your product's going to fit, some of the information we're giving you is too early. Um, and then Chagas again helps. So Chagas do a lot of the work helping with the product development and the technical side. But I suppose the the challenge is if somebody has a great idea, we probably would say, yes, come along and let's chat to you and let's see how long it's going to take to get the product developed. But what we often would say is that if you can at least try and develop it in the kitchen yourself and to try and have a stable product. So it's it's not a yes, no answer, unfortunately. Um, But we're happy to speak to anyone on the phone if they're not sure whether the programme fits them or not. Well, say I have a product and it is market ready and I say I want to sign up for this programme. What is it going to consist of whenever I'm listed on it? Okay, so if you're participating in the programme, 
Um, it's a six-month programme from June through to December this year. Um, it, it, it involves being in, uh, in, at workshops, so there's a workshop every three weeks. You also are assigned a marketing mentor and a, and a technical mentor to help you to make sure the product is getting, getting the right support. Um, you'll also meet industry experts and that could mean people from our existing base here in Ireland. So we have not quite a buddying system, but we have a steering group made up of the likes of Marianne O'Brien from Lily O'Brien's and from Ray, of Ray Coyle from Tato. So we have a good, very, very strong steering group and you get to meet those as well. And they advise companies on how they did it um, what they would suggest that you would do. Um, we do a study visit to London as well so that we bring people around the stores and say, show them the new innovations that are happening, show them the new kind of packaging. Food is very, very visual product, obviously. And so we show people packaging. Um, we have, as I said earlier, access to production facilities at Ashtown and Chagask and at Moor Park, where we were today. And um, then we work towards the, the ultimate output is that you would have an investor-ready business plan and that you would be able to source the funding that you need to launch the product. Launching food products is, is a, a challenge for most people because it can be expensive. So you need quite a lot of marketing because it's a busy space. A lot of people doing products at the minute. So you need to make sure that you have enough money to market and to make sure that people see your brand on the shelf and that they understand what you're offering. Do you point them in the right direction for sources of funding? We do indeed, yes. Obviously, with Enterprise Ireland, we, we have our own high potential startup funding. And um, we tend to fund approximately 100 companies every year. And, I mean, we were delighted this year that uh, just there in February, we had um, 100 people, 100 companies through the HPSU, the High Potential Startup um, Investment Plan. And 19 of them were foods, which is the highest number ever. So we were delighted. I mean... Ireland, I mean, between Board B and I suppose the Department of Agriculture, we have a great uh, reputation overseas for our clean um, food products, for our origin green and our sustainability. So there are a lot of new companies starting in food at the moment. So it's fantastic that we can use the expertise that we have here and the, um, the demand that's coming from overseas to be able to source those products. So it's good from that perspective. Is this a good time to be a food company in Ireland? It's a great time to be a food company, no matter what size. So they obviously start in different sizes. You have people that sell in the farmer's market and they're very happy to stay there and, you know, work towards that. Then you have others that are selling locally in their local super value or their local Tesco. And then you have those that are nationally so selling and looking always to the international market. And I suppose they're the type of companies that the Foodworks program is aiming towards. But we're delighted with all the companies that are coming up through the, what we would call the pipeline. And um, it's a really exciting time to have a food and beverage company in Ireland at the moment because the research would show is that most Irish consumers are very, very interested where their food has come from, so the provenance of their food. And then a new research done by Board Beer recently showed that something like 65% of people would prefer to buy local or Irish products rather than imported products. So there's a lot of opportunity there where we can look at what's coming into Ireland 
and say, well, I think I can do something better myself and, and try and start the business here. So it's a really exciting time for people. You said at the start that it's the first time that Board Bia, Enterprise Ireland and Tagus have collaborated in this programme, but it's actually the fourth year that it has taken place. So you have a few examples of successes from the past. We have, yeah. I mean, yes, it's the fourth year, but it's the first, I suppose, the first time as an initiative we came together and, and um, we had, I guess the guys that we, we had... Uh, we have seen a lot of success with our, one of them is a brewing company over in Wicklow called Wicklow Wolf. And um, they're for sale as far as I know down in Dirty Nellies there in Bunratty. So anyone wants to try it, it's a very, very, they have lovely different flavours of beer. They have, they're growing their own hops, which gives them a, a USP above some of the other companies. So the craft beer sector is blossoming at the moment and there's some fantastic products out there. And we worked with Wicklow Wolf. There's another company called Nobo, which obviously stands for no cow. So it's a dairy-free dessert they're making. So it's you can't call it an ice cream, obviously, because there's no cream in it. But um, it's made with coconut milk and, and avocado. So it's a superb product. It's really, really tasty for anyone who has um, a dairy intolerance. But even for people who don't, it's still a gorgeous, gorgeous product. Um, and in that case... The product took quite a while to make, so they already had a kitchen scale product when they came to talk to us. But the challenges with using those ingredients is that they they didn't want to put any gums in because, of course, they're trying to stay very natural and health and wellness being a new trend as well. That the product was very, very hard when it came out of the freeze and was like too icy. So there was a lot of technical work required to make sure that that product was consumer ready. And there's a company in Limerick that we worked with as well, the Global Sauce Company. Now, most people won't have seen them uh, on the shelves because they sell really to food service and to food manufacturing. But um, they were on the programme with us and we did a lot of work with them in terms of what types of sauces people want nowadays and reduced salt, reduced sugar and all that. So the trends, you have to always be watching the trends to see what are, what are people going to be looking for next year and next month. Do you find with a programme like this that you will get a lot of people coming with their homemade jams and their homemade chutneys? We have found that in the past. Um, and I suppose we've tried to tailor our website to show that it's very export-focused businesses that we really do want to talk to. There are quite a few programmes that are already there for people who are staying within the local market. So there's the Super Value uh, Food Academy programme that's run with Bourbia. And the local enterprise offices all do a start your own food business program. So there's quite a lot of support for people who are working at a local level. So I suppose we've tried to pitch ours into where we would have seen there was a gap in the market. And um, so jams and chutneys probably aren't the type of company that we're looking at. Um, Having said that, we had a very nice sauce company from Kerry on last year where they were making a really, really high end premium um, salted caramel sauce that you could use either within baking process or as a topping on ice cream and things like that. Again, it was very high quality, very premium. And uh, so we worked with them for a while on the program as well to try and help them find where they were really going to fit in. So it sounds like if you do have a product there and if you're unclear in any way, 
the best thing to do is really to get in touch with yourselves or you have you have some introduction meetings coming up we do yes so the the two options well the, the main option is to go on the website and have a look at it because we have put up some sample questions there and we've kind of said look if you think it's for you answer these questions and pop us an email um of course sometimes you won't be able to answer the questions because you're too early on and that's fine as well but um Based on that, those responses then, we're trying to meet people around the country. So, as you said earlier, Sharon, we did meet in, in Moor Park today and we had some really interesting uh, conversations. We're meeting in Dublin on Thursday, the 10th of March. We're in Dublin again on, at the end of March and we're in Galway on the 5th of April. And we will add more introduction meetings days and as we need them. So we put those out there just to, for a start. Um, we can meet up to 20 companies in any one day because we have different panels that can meet. So we'd be delighted to hear from people. Um, I think the main message from me is to have a look at the website and determine if it's something you're interested in and then pop us an email and we'll come back to you. And the web address is foodworksireland.ie. That's right, yes. Mia, thanks for telling us about that this evening. Best of luck with it and we look forward to hearing from you later on in the year to see how it's all going. Appreciate it, Sharon. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Maeve and best of luck to you if you're a food entrepreneur and you decide to take the plunge. Still to come tonight, Chef Emmett McCourt, who wrote the award-winning Feast or Famine, will be talking about heritage and traditions in line with the March theme for the Northern Ireland Year of Food and Drink. And finally, at the end of the show, Ken Foodie Karen Coakley, will be on the phone with her latest recipe. Next, though, we're staying with the phone to talk to GIY Ireland founder Michael Kelly about the hashtag Give Peas a Chance campaign. Are you intrigued? P2. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Michael, thanks for taking the call this evening. No problem, Sharon. How are you? I'm great. I'm very interested in hashtag give peas a chance. Will you explain <laughs> to the listeners what it is? You had a 2015 campaign called that and you're going to do it again this year. So tell us what it is exactly. Yeah, so the give peas a chance campaign is uh, really it's it's about trying to show people how, how easy uh, it is to grow your own food. So GIY is a not-for-profit organization. We uh, we basically inspire and support people to grow some of their own food, either at home or uh, schools or in the community. And one of the one of the things that we decided to do last year was to we created a campaign with with Cully and Sully, who uh, most people would know. Um, and the idea was to get people growing growing food at work. Um, uh, the you know the I suppose that demographic or that age group of people say prof- young professionals between maybe twenty and and thirty five or forty um, are kind of you know hard for us to reach and and can often be a little bit afraid of of growing their own food so we've taken it down to a very basic level and uh, we got five hundred companies last year to sign up and take part in the campaign to put together a team of five growers and they were growing peas on their desk at work so hence the the name of the campaign giving peas a chance um and there was a fantastic kind of competitive intercompany kind of competitive element to it where they had to sort of upload pictures of their growing and 
shows the the pots of peas in unusual places like the boardroom in work or the toilet or whatever. And um, it was a bit of fun, I guess, but also a very sort of serious serious uh, aspect to it, which is we're, we're big believers in the power of small food growing experiences to help people to understand where their food comes from and start, you know, living healthier and more more sustainably, ultimately. It was a social media campaign, I believe you're talking there about uploading photographs and yeah. the hashtag give peas a chance. Was it exactly. Facebook and Twitter or was it just Twitter? It was, and Instagram, it was Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, what it, you know, all the different social social media channels. And then people were uploading pictures um, to the campaign website on Cully and Sully's uh, uh, pages as well. So, um, yeah, it was just a really, really fun campaign. And um, as I said, over 500 companies took part. And in the end, the winner was a company called Optimal Chiropractics down in Cork and um, they won a prize worth worth over five grand, and part of it was that, that they got to donate a food garden to a charity of their choice. So they picked um, an incredible charity in Cork called the Cork uh, Association for Autism, which is an adult autism uh, um, daycare centre. And uh, a couple of weeks back, we put the we put the garden in. A uh, big metal of about forty people came together. Um, to do it and um just an amazing thing for the for the for the service users in that organization to be able to you know grow some of their own food and um horticultural therapy is an amazing thing where people can can um you know uh, they really benefit from being outside and being in contact with nature and and around food growing experiences Whenever you started the campaign, where all the the companies that signed up were they sent a packet of peas? Yeah, exactly. Pea Sorry, seeds, I, didn't I should say. That very well. So they they signed up uh, to take part, and then they would have got a free um, growing kit from us, which included the pots and the and the seeds themselves, and the compost, and all the instructions on how to do it. So it was a really kind of you know self contained thing that they had everything they needed to to grow. I guess for us all the time we're coming across um, when we try to convince people to grow their own they do have that sort of slightly afraid of it or you know not quite sure where to start and think it's a really you know difficult thing that you have to you have to know the Latin names for plants and you know (laughs) all these uh, barriers that people feel about giving it a try so the whole point of this campaign was really just to make it easy for people to to um to get started and get stuck in and we've lots of the companies who got involved are now taking it to another level with their with their employees maybe putting in some raised beds at work or um you know getting more involved in food growing which is the whole point of it for us is to see that progression then on to you know taking it to a, another level then I would imagine it's a great team building exercise for companies to take part yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. It's it's um it's a great leveler too actually. We've we've put in gardens into some companies where um and they tell us that, you know, if if they've a team of thirty or forty staff members who are who are interested and involved that you could have, you know, a very senior manager and a more junior person kinda of, you know working together or interacting maybe for the first time so it's it's a brilliant team building and um social thing in a way for 
employees to get get healthier in 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 the workplace and networking as you say with other members of the the organization that you might not not normally get an opportunity to talk to for example exactly yeah. exactly yeah so we work with um um you know obviously this campaign five 500 companies took part and you know some very kind of um big brands in their um you know companies uh Companies like BNY Mellon and Diageo up in Dublin and James Gate and, you know, uh, companies of that size. And it's really interesting to see uh, see companies using food growing as a kind of a way to, to help staff stay, stay healthy and happy at work. Fantastic. And they get a prize at the end of it. Is it free to, to take part? Yeah, it's completely free to take part. And actually this year... Um, the campaign is, is it was such a success last year I guess honestly when we started last year with Cully and Sully uh, as partners we weren't 100% sure whether anyone would go for it like it was the first time anything like this has been done the idea of growing growing some food on your desk at work it's a bit kind of out there I guess and um, it was such a success that this year we're, we're, we're tripling the size of it there'll be 1500 companies taking part and and it's in the uk as well uh this year so it's it's just been phenomenal and as you say they they get a free kit uh to help them on their growing and then the the winning companies get a prize which is a mix of sort of stuff for themselves they get vouchers for cookery schools and various things and then the best part of it they get to donate a food garden worth three grand to a charity of their choice um and that's, um, you know, the the really kind of worthwhile element to it at the end. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, is it open for applications for 2016? It'll be open for applications around the end of May. So it's it's a quite um, uh, it's a quite sort of short campaign because because you're growing the peas in pots. You know, it's only kind of six weeks or so that it takes to to grow them, and. Um, it's uh, so yeah, we're doing it over over the summer months, effectively, kind of June and into July. So it'll be open towards the end of May, and um, all the details are on the Cully and Sully website. That's where you can sign up to to take part. So people can start lobbying their colleagues at work to get on yeah. board with them and and get teams together to to exactly, even think yeah. about the ideas about where the the photographs are going to be taken or where they're going to plant it and whatnot. Exactly, exactly. We, it's a team of five is what is all you need um, in a company. So in a couple of companies, like lots of teams signed up and so on. So the demand is quite high for the kits. Uh, so I'd say keep an eye on the website and, um, as you say, start thinking about ideas for like the com- as as is any always the case with these things when companies are competing absolutely with each other, yeah it gets very very competitive, competitive yeah and the standard was was amazing so um yeah you need to up your game to to be in with a prize a chance to win but on the other hand you know the benefit of taking part and for most people um you know two and a half thousand people took part i suppose this last year and um it's for most of those people it was the first time they'd ever grown anything at all so it's you know for us that's just that's just an amazing thing you know there are people that have never grown who who have started that process and hopefully get bitten by the bug and move on to to grow even more well as the founder of grow it yourself ireland which is a social enterprise it it must have been 
and given you huge satisfaction to see the success of this because that's what Grow Yourself is all about. Yeah, well, we're all the time looking for um, ways to engage people and get them to give it a try. That's the challenge. Like, we know from research we've done that lots of um, lots of people want to do it. Like, if you, if you poll people, 60 or 70% of people want to grow their own food, but a much, much smaller percentage actually do it. So question is why is there that, that gap between those two things and we think it's because people are people are afraid of it they don't think they have the time or the the expertise um as i said earlier on they're afraid of the the kind of latin names and, and that sense that you need to be a great gardener to do it whereas you know so we're all the time looking for ways to break down those barriers and help people to feel that they can give it a shot um, and so that's what this campaign is about really taking it back to a a very basic level um, same we do almost the exact same thing in schools where we send out this year we'll, we'll work with over 150,000 kids in Ireland and the UK helping them to grow their own food for the first time in a very similar kind of way but um, so that's that's what it's all about for us you know getting more people involved and I think in fairness Cully and Sully are just an amazing partner for us because they get this stuff and they're they're also very interested in um great food and health and nutrition and so on so it's a good really good fit for us well it does sound like a wonderful campaign you might see some photographs now in 2016 with a a pot of peas with a set of headphones on it well there you go it sounds like a winner already in a radio station you just you, you, i hope you have a bit of a bit of natural light in there because it may not work otherwise yeah we'll have to get the sun lamps in for them into the studio yeah sounds good that sounds amazing you've just totally got to do that now well, congratulations on the success of it in twenty sixteen or twenty fifteen. I'm sure twenty sixteen will be three times as big as you say. You're yeah. going for the fifteen hundred people and um, fifteen hundred teams. Yeah. Fifteen hundred yeah. teams, yeah. And uh, we will just urge listeners then to to keep an eye on your Twitter accounts and your Facebook page and and Cully and Sully's as well, and to sign up come May whenever it's open to yeah. entries. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks a million for for talk for talking about it and so on. It's great to get the word out there, and, and uh, hopefully, lots of companies in Limerick will get involved. Lovely to talk to you too, Michael. And we will talk later in the year to see how it's going. Great stuff. Thanks a million, Sharon. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. So far on the show tonight, Maeve Conaghan from Enterprise Ireland has provided information about Foodworks Ireland, which is a development programme for food entrepreneurs. And GIY Ireland founder Michael Kelly was telling us about the successful 2015 Give Peas a Chance campaign. Don't forget, if you've missed any of the shows so far, it will be up on the podcast later in the week and you'll find it on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Now, as you know, in Northern Ireland, they're celebrating food and drink for the whole of 2016 and each month they have a different theme. For March, it is heritage and traditions. So I'm joined now on the phone by Chef Emmett McCourt, who wrote the award winning book Feast or Famine. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. 
Emmett, March is the heritage and traditions theme for the Northern Ireland Year of Food and Drink and you have an award winning book, it's called Feast or Famine, which is a cultural food journey of the northwest of Ireland, so who better to talk to about heritage and traditions? Yeah, how are you doing Sharon? No, it's great. I mean, uh, we won the award last year, the best colony travel book in the world. Uh, Feast or Famine and it's great they, they receive international recognition you know for everybody who was involved in the concept and it really will hopefully open up a lot of tourism markets for us now and I think that our food really has come of age you know and it's great to see us celebrating the Heritage Month uh, March uh, 2016 our Northern Ireland Year of Food and Drink uh, so it's great stuff Sharon you know so Tell me how the book came about where did the idea come from? Well I would I travelled the world extensively as a chef and I was, I suppose, sourced the passion, my own passion for food heritage, uh, classically trained uh, in French cookery. And what they do in France is they name a lot of dishes uh, after people and places throughout history. And this provided me with a natural skill, if you like, for sourcing local produce and the historical aspect. So I always felt that the northwest of Ireland was, uh, you know, underrated in terms of its food history and food heritage and and food in particular and yet no with with such a great history here such a a strong history as well and uh, I discovered so much it's been a fascinating journey uh, when I went down that road when I returned to Ireland so it's great to see uh, us being celebrated internationally as a food tourism destination and uh, you know as I say we really have come of age in terms of our food and food culture so great stuff. Well, Derry City itself has won an incredible accolade last year whenever it was the runner-up in the Foodies Town competition run by the Restaurant Association of Ireland. And that was a huge honour for them because I can remember 10 years ago being in Derry City and find it very difficult to find a choice of good restaurants. But it's not like that now. Absolutely. We've come, as I say, we've come of age in Northern Ireland and the North West particular, but uh, we've come so far in terms of our food offering uh, and tourism potential uh, and that's a great great honour to, to receive that award runner up you know over over uh, cities like Cork and Dublin who are renowned for their food uh, their food offering you know so so it's great to see it uh, as I say and there's so much offering there now we've got the best chefs uh, best restaurateurs you know and food offering artisan producers suppliers here and one of the things about dairy you know geographically uh, where it's located uh, you know it's bordering Donegal there you know so I mean we have the best uh, natural resources as well, the River Foyle, the best seafood in the world, you know, so it's great to see it. And uh, as I say, we've really come of age, so it's it's great to receive all these accolades, you know, so great stuff. Give us an example of some of the produce that you've used in recipes in your book, Feast or Famine. Well, uh, re- quite recently, I am just I've started using uh, Tamla Foods, which is a dark mountain cheese, a great artisan cheese producer, Kevin Hickey which uh, I suppose he takes his inspiration from the Sparrow Mountains and named the cheese after some of the mountains there. Uh, Broider Gold Ripseed Oil, for example, I've been using that for a few years now. Uh, there's a great heritage story behind the, the Broider Hoard as well, where Leona named the, the, the Ripseed Oil after the Broider Hoard. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many others too. I mean, Doherty's Meats, for example, as a, an institution, you know, here, uh, one of the best dishes I've been asked about dairy to is, I suppose, Doherty's Meat or Month Stew. And uh, there's nowhere else you can get it, you know. But, uh, I mean, there's so many different artisan producers. Donegal Prime Fish, for example, you know, that do a great uh, Irish silver smoked salmon. Uh, I mean, the list, the list is really endless. So does Grant's pork, which, uh, I mean, we've been exporting port, uh, pork in the 
in the northwest since the 1700s, and we've uh, we've always had a great pork industry here. But Grants uh, actually were receiving gold medals in the 1930s, 1940s for their dry cured uh, hams and bacon's. So I would use a lot of local produce, you know, uh, connected to the northwest. But I mean, if you go out throughout Northern Ireland. I mean, there's Abernethy butter, for example, as well. We've got our own butter here in the northwest, too, Donnybrewer butter, and churn butter. So you're starting to see all these great artisans popping up uh, all over the country. So it's great to see Irish food in particular, you know, uh, and the best cuisines of Western Europe. So great, great altogether. Whenever I think of the Irish famine, I automatically think about the potato. Do you have any potato yeah. recipes in, in the book? Because obviously in Northern Ireland, we have the Comber Early yeah. potato, which is a PGI product. Just tell us what that means. Well, a PGI is, P, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the Comber Early's are a great, a great potato. We've also got the Armagh Bramley apples, and we also have uh, Loch Neils, which were the first to, res- to receive their protected geographical indication. Uh, which means there's nowhere else they can be produced uh, in the world apart from Armagh, let's say, for the Bramley apples or the Cumber Airlies, you know. And I would use a lot of those uh, different products, uh, the Loch Nails, for example, as well. But, uh, you know, the Cumber Airlies I would use in a lot of potato recipes. Uh, also the Lumper potato, you talked about the famine there too. There's a great, great friend of mine, a great artisan farmer and grower, uh, Michael McKillop, from the Glens of Antrim too, who produced, who brought back the Lumper actually. Uh, heritage brand, but I would use all them potatoes, you know, and, and a lot of the recipes, for example, boxty, uh, you know, and then your your champ, or what we call in dairy or the northwest is poundies, uh, and there's there's a different uh, a variety of recipes throughout the country where you where you'll actually see boxty, uh, you know, as far down as Connemara, you know, so it's uh, it's great to be using all these local produce, you know, so great stuff. So although the book is a cultural journey of the northwest of Ireland, yeah. it does bring in lots of other elements and lots of other ingredients from other corners of the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it does. I mean, I went down the road. I immersed myself in the culture and the history of the people from the northwest and both cultures uh, in terms of the Scotch-Irish and the Irish themselves, you know, after the famine. But I, re, I suppose I re-loved their journey. Uh, and it sort of mirrored my journey as a chef, traveling and leaving home, and you know, and your culture becomes displaced. So it's a very sad, uh, sad but fascinating journey that I undertook. And you know, as I say, it's, it, it was great to do that. But uh, you know, as I say, it's great to celebrate that now. You know. As a chef yourself, then, did you study your craft in Northern Ireland, or did you go abroad to do it? Where well, did- I mean. Yeah, initially it was uh, Port Rush Catering College that really got me into the love of food, if you like. Uh, and then I, I felt at the time, now we were talking, like the, the late 80s, you know, that, that I needed to travel, to gain experience. And first of all, I went to London and worked in the Royal Garden Hotel, five-star hotel under a guy called Jean-Marie Zimmerman. And at that time, Anton Mossyman was, uh, was a great chef and pioneer chef at the time. And I learned, I suppose, uh, you know, it was great grounding for me at that stage and then from there I went on to France and worked in Two Star Michelin restaurant in France and a, guy, a legendary guy called George Penu, uh who since passed away but but at that time he was doing Grand Mare cuisine uh, in France almost like Paul Bocuse what Paul Bocuse was, is doing now and uh, you know it was a great time in France then too and I remember I remember at that time there was a young guy just uh, starting off in London in a place called Harvey's in Wandsworth uh, which later became, you know, uh, Marco Pierre White was the guy, you know, he, he received his first Michelin star, and that's 
all these guys were, you know, just get just to give you an idea of the time. Uh, you know, these guys were were learning the great classics of French cuisine. So uh, you know, I did I did a lot of travel, and then I went on to travel and cruise ships and traveled the the world and and various cruise ships. I worked for Disney. Uh, it was one of the first cruise ships I worked on. And I realised that the further away I travelled, the culture was being becoming displaced, you know. And I had to source my own passion as a chef. And really, as I say, you know, just to go back to the book Feast or Famine, it really celebrates Irish food, uh, not just the northwest of Ireland, but uh, you know, and the celebration of Irish food and the great skills that have been lost along the way too. And for example, bacon bread in a pot oven, because I suppose all living revolved around the hearth, uh, all the songs, all the stories our food stories, all the music. And, you know, that that's something that we've lost along the way. And it really needs to be celebrated, you know, so it's all good. Given the extensive travel that you've enjoyed throughout your career, is that something that you recommend to young people that are going into the the world of, of, of being a chef? Absolutely. I mean, no matter where you go, you're always uh, picking up uh, experience and, and, and being inspired by other chefs. Uh I mean, throughout the world, there's different cuisines, and I suppose if you look at it, you know, some of them are very, very similar, but it's, it's you know, it's one of the greatest gifts that, that you can give, you know, and the book itself, uh, it's actually, this, this quote comes from a Choctaw Indian, you know, uh, American Indian, which I mentioned as one of the famine heroes uh, of the time, during the famine, the Choctaw, and their massive uh, gesture of humanitarian aid, but it's important to travel, it's important to broaden your horizons, you know, and you really see things from of, of what they really are the further you go away you know and you know I felt it important to come back home and a lot of chefs are doing that now you know uh, they're coming back home with all this experience and inspiration and I mean abroad they might have been using some of the best ingredients whilst they were abroad that were local to them but you start to realise that, that your your produce your local produce that you've always used you always used back home is probably the best produce in the world, you know. We've got the, the greatest natural resources, you know, the Atlantic Ocean there too, the, the great, uh, you know, the Atlantic Way there, you know, where, where the best seafood comes from, with the best grass-fed beef uh, and cattle, you know. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's great stuff, you know. And as I say, I keep saying this, it's great to be celebrated now internationally uh, and great to see Northern Ireland Year of Food uh, coming of age now. So, And it gives us a confidence too. And also... It gives us a confidence, but it also gives us a competitive age over other countries. If we know our history, our heritage, uh, you know, it's important to look look behind before you look forward, you know. so. What's the day job now? Where can people find you if they're well, up in Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, I teach at the Northwest Regional College in, uh, you know, in a restaurant there called the Flying Clipper, which coincidentally was named after one of the famine ships from this area. And, uh, I mean, we've been getting great rave reviews there recently uh, for a college restaurant, you know, so we're, we're doing great stuff in there with the students and, you know, it's great to see the students uh, actually, you know, progressing and, and doing well too in the industry and travelling as well, but uh, I'm doing a lot, of, I'm, I suppose I've created a lot of links with America too, you know, I've been sent to IBAM in Chicago last October uh, as food ambassador for Tourism Ireland and, you know, I want to get the message out there, uh, especially in the American market, you know, with the diaspora. So I've been invited to a lot of festivals this year as well in, in the U.S. But uh, as I say, with this project now, I've got my own cookery school uh, in Derry too. I also develop food tours for groups and parties. I do a lot of cookery demonstrations at various festivals around the country. And we've done a recently quite a, quite a unique event. 
which was called Food and Folk Song, where I I uh, collaborated with uh, Derry's International uh, Irish Music Festival, and I uh, you know produced six individual canopies, and in between each canopy, it mapped the journey of the, those early immigrants that left these shores. But in between each canopy, there was musical pieces performed by uh, various artists like the Henry Girls and that. So that was quite an exciting night, you know, and a concept that will travel. So it's great, as I say, they, they see our food now, food and drink, and uh, come of age, you know. I'm dying to know what the canopies are, because I'm sure they incorporate some some great Northern Ireland produce. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I say, I used a lot of uh, various local produce, like Northbound Brewery, for example. I braised one canopy in particular. Uh, it was Grant's pork, braised uh, belly of pork. And I used a rutabaga or turnip puree. And Indian meal bread was the base of it. And that actually told the story of how those first Scotch-Irish travelled to the New World, and they were met by uh, the Merrimack Indians. And the Merrimack Indians showed them those first early settlers in the 1700s, uh, Boston Bean and Succotash, uh, before their crops actually grew. And, you know, on that canopy too was Succotash, Boston Bean. But they also, those Indians, those American Indians, they, they showed uh, the settlers' children the corn that flowers, which later became known as popcorn. So that was also on the canopy. And then we had the great artisan, artist music, if you like, from the Henry Gears or uh, various other artists. And, you know, a very, very exciting night, you know. I'd imagine a food demonstration from you is like a history lesson as well, like a very interesting history lesson. So you're not only seeing the food being made, but you're learning so much about the traditions and the heritage. Yeah, well, really, really, it's about bringing our food stories to life, you know, and I found an avenue of doing this through this project, and that's what's been so exciting about it, you know, and it really tells the story of both cultures, and again, you know, I've always used local projects and sourced local projects, important to uh, learn the provenance, but I mean, I suppose I've gone that extra mile uh, in the sense that, you know, I've gone deeper into the stories of the provenance of the food and where, where it's come from, but not only that, going into the history you know, we have such a fascinating history in this country, and especially around the northwest. You know, that's where the, the plantation of Ulster was really created, uh, after the flight of the earls, you know. And as I say, once I delved into this, I immersed myself in this culture and history, it was so fascinating, so strong, you know, that you actually become those people that, that uh, and follow in their footsteps. And, you know, it resonates with you. You know, I come from the, the, the bog side of Derry, you know, and I find myself resonating and, you know, have an empathy, if you like, for those first pioneers that, that, that were veterans of the Siege of Derry, for example, and, and were the first to leave these shores, uh, Presbyterians mainly, you know. So, and then after the famine too, you know, the, the, the devastating effect of the famine and the sadness, you know, so it really is a fascinating journey and, you know, it's great, great to uh, see it, so. Well, you must let us know if you're ever down in this neck of the woods so that we can come along and see you. In the meantime, where can people buy your book? Absolutely. I mean, the book could be uh, purchased from the, the publishers, Guildhall Press, ghpress.com. Uh, it's also in, in Eason's and a few local Eason's in various parts of the country, but also Amazon. You'll get it on Amazon, amazon.co.uk. And Kenny's also in Galway. Kenny's.ie. We're, we're talking about the potential now of book number two, you know, a follow-on, both when the Irish hit uh, the US and the New World, and what happened to their food then, 
and, and what happened to the culture, you know, I mean, I don't agree that we have various other cultures, like the Jewish and the Italians and that. And the Irish actually sourced their, their brisket uh, for corned beef, you know, which was popularized throughout the United States thereafter. So, great, exciting times. Uh, hopefully they come, you know. So. Well, congratulations on the success of the book so far. Do let us know now if you are down in this neck of the woods and when the next book is out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sure. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Emmett. Great stuff. Thanks, sure. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan, and just before the break, I had a very nice chat with Chef Emmett McCourt from Northern Ireland about the March theme, which is heritage and tradition. So be sure to, to take a spin up there to the northwest whenever you're next in Northern Ireland. Earlier in the show, Maeve O'Connaughan from Enterprise Ireland provided information about Foodworks Ireland, a development programme for food entrepreneurs, and GIY Ireland founder Michael Kelly told us about the successful 2015 Give Peas a Chance campaign. We're at the final interview of the evening, and it's with Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley, and I can't wait to find out what recipe she has to tempt us with this week. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen, welcome back to the programme. Hi, Sharon. Thank you for having me. Tell us what you are cooking up for us tonight. Okay, I have a lovely new recipe on my blog, and it's also on my Facebook page, Kinmer Foodies. Um, but it's for a courgette, butter bean, and ham soup. And it's one of these soups that I just kind of came up with one day here. I was in the mood for cooking and wasn't quite sure what to cook, and had courgette in my fridge. Butter beans are something that I have in my store cupboard all the time because I think we've spoken about this before, just they're a fantastic thing to have. But also the kids take them to school in their lunch boxes and make a salad with them, with tuna and all of that. So I just kind of thought of teaming the courgette up with the butter beans. And then I had some beautiful pancetta from Gobine and West Cork, which has got a, like a, a sweet, salty, smoky flavour to it. Now, you can use a regular pancetta or parma ham if you want to. Um, just, you know, cut it into chunks. And so basically, yeah, this is my soup. So you have the courgette. It's a really light, lovely flavor. And then the butter beans, like, give this a lovely creamy texture and then add to that the saltiness and the smokiness of the pancetta. And it's a real lovely kind of a warming soup. Talk us through then how you make it. Do you fry up an onion first, for example? Whenever you're making soup, Sharon, always fry. You always fry off everything first. So whatever veg you have, um, you sweat them for about five or ten minutes, season them with a little bit of salt and pepper because when you sweat them, this is what gets the flavour going at the start of your soup. Sometimes people tend to put vegetables into a pot, cover them with water, bring it to the boil and blitz it and they wonder why it doesn't really taste too good uh, because that's really, you need to you need to get all that flavour out. Like if you think about it, if you take an onion and when you put an onion into butter or oil and when you slowly cook the onion, what happens is it caramelises and that caramelisation process is actually all the sugar being released in the onion. And of course, there's your flavour. What kind of oil do you like to use? What do you recommend? There's so many I oils out there now that I'm sure people are getting a bit confused yeah. between no, rapeseed and sunflower and even olive myself, oil. And it's one of those ones that I kind of run away from because, number first, you're not supposed to be using oil. Then they're saying oil is fine. You know, this whole debate about fats, no fats, good fats, bad fats. So for me, um, 
I just stick with what James Coffey is a chef. He's from West Limerick, actually, in the Park Hotel here in Kinmare. And James had said to me a few years ago, he was doing a cookery demo, and he said, olive oil isn't really supposed to be used for cooking, and it's down to, let's say, the temperature. It can't reach a high enough temperature. So he always, and as well, then they say it's carcinogenic when you bring it above a certain degree. So for me, I always use sunflower oil, you know, and then you'd have people who'd be saying to you, you shouldn't be using sunflower oil for da 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 but you know what, it works for me. And it just, I've tried rapeseed oil, but to be honest, sometimes I've gotten like a, a bad flavor off the rapeseed oil. I probably shouldn't be saying that because I'm going against the grain, but I've had two bottles of rapeseed oil where they've just had a really funny smell and a funny flavor. I don't know if anybody else has come across that but it has stopped me from using it. So I just stick with plain sunflower oil. So warm it up in your pan and put your onion in and sweat it over over a low heat. Because I think some people might have the heat turned up too high and that's what causes it to burn then. And then you burn it and you put the lid on. So like a medium to low heat, put your lid on. And of course, then what you have, that's the whole sweating process because the steam stays inside there. So it sweats. You take the lid off, it'll just, all that steam will evaporate. So give that about five or ten minutes for your onion and your courgette. Um, oh, garlic. I've garlic in there as well. And I never put garlic in soups, but it just seemed to make sense to me. So there's garlic in there. So fried those off. Then I took those out of my pan, put them onto a plate, and I put in my pancetta. Now, if you have a pancetta that has a good fat, you know, good lot of fat in it, don't bother putting any more oil in because you'll have the, the oil in the pancetta. But if you think the pan is too dry, then put a little drop in. So again cook that so that it goes nice and golden but make sure not to burn it so put everything back into the pot and then add in your butter beans into the pot with your stock and everything else and let it simmer for about five minutes and then give it a whiz and what you find is the beans actually make it really really silky and creamy it's absolutely gorgeous and then what i did was i served this with a dollop of creme fraiche and that added to the creaminess again so it was really really nice and would you keep a few of the little bits of pancetta for garnish to put on top of the creme fraiche then? You're a step ahead of me. That's a great idea. And I didn't think about that. But like I was in that midweek for ourselves. Um, but you know what? I, on my blog, I think I said, or in my food column, because I've put part of my food column as well, that it's a lovely one if you've got friends around for dinner. So definitely, if you were having friends around some dinner, for dinner, crisp up some little pieces of the pancetta, you know, some nice thin pieces and sprinkle them over. It'd be delicious. Because, of course, soup is such a brilliant starter if you are having visitors or having a dinner party because it is. you make it in advance and you leave it there and it doesn't need any attention except to warm it through when the time comes around. Absolutely. And there are so many things that you can do with soup now. I mean, there are so many different soups out there. People are getting really creative with soups. Or there's a restaurant here in Mulcahy's in Khmer and Bruce used to serve years ago, um, I don't know if he still does it, a pea soup to start off with his amuse bush. So like a tiny little shot glass with a little shot of his soup inside in it. And this would be perfect in that as well because it's a really, it's such a decadent soup. Yeah, that sounds very fancy now and it gives the real wow factor if you're having a dinner party. We'll have to have a conversation some night, Karen, about your top tips for a wow dinner party with very little effort. You're putting me under pressure there. <laughs> I'm sure you can be thinking about that between now and maybe next month or so. And it's an idea. Because I'm sure you'll have brilliant ideas for that. Now, a listener has asked me to find out from you because you're, you have four boys and there's yourself and Vincent, so you have a big family there. When you're making a soup, how much stock would you be using like, in order to, to make enough for six people? My, my rule of thumb would be about a litre, maybe a litre and a half. 
But a litre would normally give, yeah, about six people. My measurements, because I'm the kind of person or the kind of cook. I mean, I'm just a home cook. I'm not a chef. So even in my blog, things that I put up there, it's kind of like, you know, I'll get, take an idea for a recipe and I'll cook it and then I'll cook it a few times and I'll just throw down the measurements and that's it. But it, in general, yeah, I would work with a litre of um, stock because even with my tomato soup, I think that's two tins of tomatoes and I have a litre of stock to that. Okay, so if people want to double up because soup is such a great one to make yeah. to to put some in the freezer for later, like just double up on say, it. Yeah, double up and it freezes perfectly. Soup freezes perfectly. I mean, we always have soup. There isn't a week goes by when I don't make soup and it's the kids come in from school, they have soup. My own lunch, soup. I'm always saying about how healthy it is, how nutritional it is. It's low fat, it's cheap, it's versatile and I just think it's about one of the best things in the world. It is a great way to get the vegetables into the children. It is, absolutely. Yeah, I think I've said before that my daughter loves broccoli soup. Yeah, you did say mm, that. And she loves the one soup that I don't like. Yeah, she loves broccoli soup, and it's a great way because to use up the stalks and the parts of the broccoli that we wouldn't normally be eating. Yeah, and uh, that's the thing. You can use every part. And my father-in-law, now he's not a fan of broccoli at all, though to be fair to me, he will always eat a small part of it if I put it on the table because I keep telling him how good it is. And he's had broccoli (laughs) soup, I don't know how many times in our house, and he thinks it's vegetable soup. I think if I told him it was broccoli soup, he wouldn't eat it. So we haven't told him that. Do you know what I have going through my head here, and I don't know where did I see it, is like a cauliflower and almond soup. Did I taste that somewhere? These are the kind of things that like, you know, get flashes in my head and I'm thinking, did I try that somewhere? But it's the kind of thing then that I'll probably take it to the next level someday and cook it. But I just think cauliflower is creamy and, you know, you could have almonds in there and other flavours. So there's so many things you can do. And it's great to use up the stock parts of some of these vegetables that would normally be going into the, the waste yeah, bin, the food waste bin. absolutely, because I'm a no-waste person, as people are finding out, especially people on Snapchat who are following my video um, recipes. I've had a few people tweeting that what they actually love and it's that fact that there is no waste. So if I'm finished with one dish, you know, if I have something left over, it'll quite often be the start of the next dish. We look forward to the cauliflower and almond soup here next time. Okay, Karen, thanks a million for talking to us this evening. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Sadly, that brings us to the end of tonight's show, which will be on the podcast later in the week. Soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Thanks so much for your company and to all of this evening's guests, Maeve Conaghan, Emmett McCourt, Michael Kelly and Karen Coakley. Until next week, when our wine guru, Ron Forrestal, returns, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.